0: We are continuing to look now at this passage of scripture which I told you was split up into three different aspects, three different parts, Christ the revealer, Christ the creator and Christ the redeemer. And so we come now to Christ the creator. Focusing in on those on that passage or that portion of this text that speaks of his rule as it says at the end of verse two, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of the glory and of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And so you can see here the author of Hebrews continues to just lavish all of these glorious attributes upon the sun that he is the heir of all things is explained now by virtue of the fact that he is the maker of all things he is the heir of all things precisely and logically because he is the maker of all things he is the creator if that were not enough Jesus is described as the very radiance the very representation of who God is. So this passage, this portion of this prologue, and that's what this is. Verses 1 to 3, or really verses 1 through 4, is the prologue to the book. You want to know what the book of Hebrews is about? Read, study, know, memorize, outline verses 1 through 4. Because verses 1 through 4 in Hebrews is like verses 1 through 18 in the book of John. That is John's introduction, that is John's prologue to the Gospel, and this is the prologue to the book of Hebrews. A magnificent array of theological truth surrounding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But here, as we begin to look at uh, Christ, not only as the revealer of God's will, but now as the establisher of the will of God, as we will see, we focus in on his ability to create. Really, I want to outline our study today around the name Jesus, just to make it more personal, just to, just to emphasize the, the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the one who is able to reveal the glory of God, Jesus is the one who is able to uh, represent the very nature of God, and Jesus. Is the one who is able to uphold the creation of God but it begins with Jesus ability as creator as creator that is his role through him as the text says he made the world it's just an amazing thing that's being said here obviously I uh, was talking with Chris uh, yesterday about this passage Chris Shaw and I think he was right to perceive that if there's one chapter in the Bible that you go to to emphasize the deity of Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter one is not a bad chapter to go to. It's a very good chapter because it stresses his deity in a number of ways, least of which is not that he is the creator. Remarkable what is being said here. Jesus is credited for his involvement in the first redemptive act, and that is the, the, or the, the, the first creative act of making all things. Nothing goes beyond that. The Jehovah Witnesses are absolutely wrong to insert the word other in front of Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He created all other things as they would want you to believe. But that is not what the Greek text says at all. It just says he created all things, exactly like what is being said here through whom he made the world. Now, interesting that he uses the word ages here, aeonios, so that he doesn't use cosmos. He uses a different Greek word to, 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 that is translated world, and that's the way that it's translated among many of the different translations that are out there. Um, hardly anybody translates the word ages because that's not really what it's trying to get at. It is something like, the created order, the universe and everything that it contains, that is what the world is trying, the word is trying to stress. And it's used in this same way later on in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, for example, verse three, it says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. And that word there is ages, So ages represents at times the created order and that's the way that it's being used here in verse 2 at the end of verse 2 he made the world he made the ages and really in light of what the new testament teaches there's no doubt of this everywhere we i mean we can go to dozens of passages of scripture that emphasize jesus's role in creation that it is through Jesus, through the the pre-existent Christ, through the logos, the wisdom of God, that the worlds were made. Let me read to you some very familiar passages of Scripture. John chapter one, of course, verses one through three. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Is there a more exhaustive way that an author of Scripture can say, Jesus made everything? And if you try to say Jesus did not make something, then you will say that something came into being that Jesus didn't make, which, of course, is exactly what John is denying. Nothing can come into creation, nothing can be created, nothing can spring into creation apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the Word, apart from the Son, apart from the wisdom of God. Proverbs chapter eight stresses the fact of God's wisdom, which many take to be a personification of the divine logos, the divine word, the divine wisdom, in other words, the the pre-existent Christ, there in Proverbs eight. But in Colossians chapter one, Colossians chapter one is another powerful parallel to this passage in Hebrews. Colossians one verses 15 to 17 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, which does not mean the first created thing, it means the preeminent one over creation. That is what proto, uh, prototokos means. It means preeminent over creation. For by him all things were created, there again, absolute, exhaustive, creative power, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. I think these explain one another. Heavens and earth, explained by, visible and invisible, explained by, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So all creatures, earthly, heavenly, whether human or angelic, All beings, everything owes its origin, its genesis to Jesus Christ. And he says, all things have been created through him. Well, that's exactly what Hebrews is saying. He is the divine agent of God to create everything. But then Colossians going even further and saying, and it's created for him. That little prepositional phrase literally means for his behalf, for his sake. Ultimately, what that means is for his glory. All of creation is for the glory of God. Creation itself serves the purpose of Jesus Christ. Think about the greatness of this. That when the creation was created, God knew that everything in creation ultimately would serve some purpose of magnifying the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that when he created the stars, the same stars, that he called Abraham in chapter 12 to come out out of his 10, chapter 15 and 17, to say, Abraham, like the multiplicity of the stars that you cannot count, so I will multiply your descendants. What are those stars but covenant stars? What are those stars but a reminder of how Jesus, the descendant, would multiply all of God's People with a great fecundity—that is a word, by the way—a multitude, just a a numerous amount of people, innumerable amount of people. And that is what the stars signify. All of creation, the seas and all of their terror, the deep, the spirit hovering over the sea, preparing the sea for one day for the Lord of the sea to walk on the sea and calm the sea and display his supremacy and his sovereignty over the sea. The sea is not just there for scientific exploration. The sea has a redemptive purpose. It expresses Jesus' sovereignty over the darkness. In the Jewish mind, the ocean represents a very dark and dismal, mysterious, and dangerous place. It still does today. Just watching on National Geographic recently, they're getting ready to explore some of the deepest parts of the ocean, and it is as dangerous as you can possibly believe. Uh, One of the gentlemen that's going down there actually talked about the fact that there's Uh, I think something like, I don't know, just probably a thousand different ways that you can die. A thousand different things that can go wrong as you go down exploring seven miles or however deep into the ocean. I don't know why anyone would want to do something like that. The, The sea is a mystery. Who conquers the mysteries of the sea, the depths of the sea, the darkness of the sea, the sun? Who is this that even the sea obeys him? And in the new creation, there will be no sea. There will be a sea of glass, pure transparency in the ocean so that we will be able to say, God is illuminating all things. No more depths, no more darkness, no more mysteries, no more dangers lurking about. But the brightness Of who he is, the brightness of his person illuminates all of these things. These are just the ways in which Jesus is sovereign over creation and how creation serves the very purposes of God, down to the very minutest little detail, the mustard seed level creation that speaks of Jesus. That Jesus created one day, knowing I'm gonna use that one day for a metaphor of the kingdom of God the lilies in the field all of these things these great ocean creatures i'm going to swallow one of my prophets one day with that creature i made <laughs> as an example of the resurrection and how the son of god has to be 3 days in the belly of the earth and then he will be resurrected what is the creation all about anyway it's not just a herma- it's not just apologetic for against evolution folks First and foremost, the creation is a theological platform that displays the greatness of the redemption of Jesus Christ. That is what creation is about. And He created it all. He makes everything come into being. And so why does the author, so we have to get back to, what is the purpose of Hebrews showing all of these divine attributes if it is not to say, Jesus speaks louder. You remember verse 1, God spoke. So in the context, we are speaking of what God has revealed. And the contrast is long ago and then in these days. Maybe that is the only other aspect of this word ages that is maybe used and why it's used particular and not cosmos because ages includes time. And so that maybe long ago and last days are supposed to be something of a stress upon the the son's ability to be sovereign over time, sovereign over all of the progress of redemption. He is sovereign over all of it. And why is the author magnifying these things in Christ? If his ultimate aim is to show, trust Jesus. Look at his supremacy. His promises are better. His blood is better. His sacrifices are better. His priesthood is better. His house is better. Everything he does is better. His promises, his covenant. Everything is better. Better than the angels. And the reason why is because the author of Hebrews wants us to listen to him. Just like God said on the Mount of Transfiguration, Lord, here we are. This is great. I'll make a tabernacle for Elijah, a tabernacle for Moses, and a tabernacle for Jesus. Put them all on the same level. And right as Peter was doing that, God interrupts him. Almost as if to say, doest thou not? Don't you dare put my son on the same level as everybody else. He is not the same as the law and the prophets. He is superior He is final, ultimate, consummative. And that's why we ought to listen to him. The exordium of Hebrews, the exhortation part of Hebrews is built on the indicative of Hebrews, on the theology of Hebrews and of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. This is the way the logic works. Exalt Jesus as high as you can. And then chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason that means the logic is connected to this in chapter 1 we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard with the stress on what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it for if the word that was spoken through angels proved unalterable And every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at first spoken through the Lord it was confirmed to us by those that heard you see it has everything to do with the message that came in Jesus that the message that came that Jesus is better that's the way that Hebrews argues all the time. It's a, 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 a prior, or I can't I think of it right now, but it's a lesser to the greater argument. It's arguing, it's saying, look, the message that came through angels is magnificent. It's unalterable. It's, it, it, and people who disobeyed it were judged. So what he's saying is the message that comes through Jesus, how much greater is our judgment if we disobey what has been revealed through Jesus Christ? Ah, oh, fortiori just came to my mind. As creator, Jesus commands our devotion and our dependence. He is sovereign over creation. Oh, what a good word to hear right now in the context in which we live. And you know I have to make a reference to the recent uh, activities by the terrorist organization ISIS. Because our own government, the government of our land is saying, this is beyond anything we have ever seen. The atrocities that are being committed to make us think, oh no, the peril. You watch the news and you're probably thinking that's why I don't watch the news. But you watch the news. They make you feel like the end of the world is tomorrow. I mean, this is just unraveling all around. You go from, this is what ISIS is doing in the Middle East to this is what's the, the, the new, newest developments in the Ukraine with Russia to just, just the other day, China sends a, a, a jet to intercept an American jet and barrels over it. within 20 feet, a provocation that could end, who knows where. And I just woke up this morning and left the house this morning, 6.0 earthquake, San Francisco. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and diverse places. Look, I'm not pin the tail on the Antichrist. I'm just saying, what's going to happen for us to read Matthew 24 in a certain fashion? Anyway, I'll get the es- off the eschatological soapbox. But let's look now at these Different attributes of Jesus Jesus therefore is the sovereign creator and as sovereign creator he is able to exhibit the glory of God so Jesus as the glory of God so with each of these terms the author of Hebrews provokes a different image a theological image that is rooted in Old Testament Old Covenant themes that have a Christocentric fulfillment all of that. And of course, this idea of the glory of God is major. So Jesus is the radiance of his glory. And that word radiance, beautiful word, isn't it? It's the only place in the whole New Testament that is used right here. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. This is the only place the entire New Testament where this word is used, but it is used elsewhere in antiquity. It is used in the Apocrypha, the Apocryphal book of the wisdom of Solomon that was also inside of the Septuagint. The Septuagint had the Apocryphal books the books that the Council of Trent later officially deemed to be canonical, which we do not observe as canonical books of the Bible. And neither did the translators of the Septuagint and neither did Jerome and neither did the early church. They understood these are historical books, nothing else. They don't bear the mark of inspiration. And a good book on that is a book by the name of The Shape of the Canon by Keith Matheson great book on the Canon to explore all of those types of points but in this apocryphal book in the wisdom of Solomon it does speak of the fact that wisdom is the radiance of everlasting light that that and that it is the image of God's own goodness his inherent goodness and um, even though it's not found this word radiance in the Canon But the theme of the glory of God is certainly found in the canon. And it has major significance, especially for the Jewish listener. Of course, Jesus is introduced in John chapter 1 as the word that became flesh and from whom we saw his glory. The reason that's important is because there is an Old Testament allusion here. There is an Old Testament echo going back to the skena'o of the Old Testament which means the tent. So the tent can only refer to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Those were the places primitively where the glory of God would come down and be manifest among the people. And I've been to Shiloh in Israel where you could go to Shiloh right now. And you could see the outlining of where the ancient tabernacle was constructed. You can still see the pattern of the ancient construction of at least one location where the tabernacle was placed in the Tent of Meeting. And surrounding that whole region there in Shiloh are hills and mountains that make that whole place like a big dome. And on the side of that dome, you find clay pots, you have pottery. Bits and pieces, and you can just go there anytime. Just go to Israel and just kind of dig around in the dirt, and you can find a little piece of clay that goes back thousands of years. It's just that simple. I did. We found it right there. With it, you know, it's like, yeah, they don't. need Not even the merchants sell this. It's so common. But those clay pots, they would break the clay pots in celebration of the glory cloud coming down in the middle of the the encamped children of Israel. That's where the glory of God would come down in the tent of meeting or in the tabernacle and consume the offering, and they would break the pots in celebration. Can you imagine? And the Bible is saying Jesus, more importantly than that, Jesus pitched his tent among us. And so the theme of the glory of God, Paul develops and even expounds on this theme. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six, he expounds on this. He says, the light will shine out of darkness. He is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And if you think of Jesus beaming his face, beaming with light, that's not what is really being said prosopon is a greek word that can be translated face but it also means presence presence so that when you stood next to jesus you were standing next to the shekinah glory of god glory that at times he chose to reveal to you Glory that if he chose to reveal it to you would seize you with instant fear and trepidation that you are in the presence of the holiness of God, that you are in the very presence of that which used to kill Old Testament priests because it's so holy. The presence that Peter saw when he was fishing and he saw and he said, oh God, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. As RC Sproul says, when humans encounter the holiness of God, flesh trembles. Flesh trembles. And so we tremble in the presence of Jesus. We tremble in the face of Jesus we see the glory of God even above all of the mirrors and shadows and images of the Old Testament that would reflect this uh, this great glory it was the glory of God in Christ that shined the brightest that shined the brightest and as a matter of fact Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 4 6 That if we want to learn of the glory of, of God, if we want to grow in our knowledge of the glory of God, look at the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, nothing mirrors or reflects or images the glory of God more fully than his Son. The glory of God is what is absolutely real and true about God. It is his attributes. It is his nature. It is his being. It is his essence. Jesus tells us what is absolutely true and real about God. To be the radiance of the glory of God means more than that Jesus just reflects the glory of God like a mirror, but he himself emanates the very glory of God. He radiates it out of his own being. An old Puritan word, he is the effulgence. In other words, the glory of God streams forth out of him. And when he returns, we will see the visible outstreaming of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ we will see him fill the earth with the glory of God like the water covers the sea. So that one commentator says that what is being talked about is that in some sense, there is a sense in which the sun is the twin source of the light of the glory of God. Isaiah says, I am the Lord, Isaiah 42, eight, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images, Isaiah 48 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act for the sake of my or for, or for who can, for how can my name be profaned and my glory, I will not give to another. But Jesus represents the glory of God in himself. And the glory of God stands for not just the brightness of the glory of God, the outshining, so that if you have in your mind more of a physical, we're not just talking about particles and photons here, but the glory of God also came to represent the very moral perfection of God, the moral holiness of God, the moral perfections of God. And here I call on the great Scottish expositor John Brown. And his commentary on Hebrews because I took all of the exegetical commentaries on the book of Hebrews and they paled in comparison to this Geneva commentary on the book of Hebrews because at a Puritan at heart he was just able to expound on the glory of God more than they in their academic world he says the glory of God is the supreme beauty of his perfection his holy wise and his benignant excellency the moral goodness without which omnipotence and eternity and immensity would be awful but not lovely this perfect glory this complete divine majesty resides in christ and it shines forth from him so that he is the communicator of its knowledge and he is the enjoyment to mankind jesus reflects the glory of God perfectly and it is part of his preexistent character he did not just image the glory of God reflect the glory of God or radiate the glory of God at his incarnation this is part of who Jesus has been from all eternity he has never changed Jesus the same yesterday today forevermore has always known what it meant, what it means to be the glory of God so John 17:5 Father glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was so he not Jesus as the glory of God and the next Jesus as the representation of God look at the text what it says it says it says through whom he made the world he's the radiance of his glory the exact representation of his Nature. Amazing, amazing words that are being used here. The word nature here is essentially synonymous with glory. It just speaks of what it means to be God. God's godhood, his attributes, his godness. That's what it is referring to. The nature of the Father is found in the Son so that he radiates and he represents God. And what that means is that he shares in the essence of God, and yet he is distinct from God, i.e. the Father. Now, this is important because by using this kind of language, radiating, representing, he, he states the doctrine of the Trinity perfectly. So he doesn't violate Either the oneness of God or the distinction of the persons, or else by radiating and representing, it doesn't mean that there is no longer any distinction between father and son. Of course there is. The father is not eliminated. He is not absorbed into the son, so to speak, so that the result is some kind of oneness theology or oneness heresy. The father and the son remain distinct. They are co-equal, co-eternal. They are equal. They are harmonious. They're in perfect unity, yet they are distinct. Nevertheless, this is where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from. Passages just like this, just like this. Now, we need to think, though, that even more than an apologetic for the Trinity, the author of Hebrews, remember, remember, above everything, he is writing messianically, he is stressing messianic themes speaking of the messiah he is elevating their view of christ so that they will view jesus as the supreme revealer of god the supreme heir of god the supreme wisdom of god who created all things the supreme son of god who radiates god's glory and represents his nature perfectly and then as we're going to see as the supreme redeemer as well. And by radiating radiating God's glory, the audience of Hebrews is meant to connect Jesus with all of those Old Testament types that we talked about in a specific way. I think because for a Jew, the glory of God was attached mainly to those those majestic aspects of Israel's life, the temple, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. But now... Jesus outshines the institutions of Israel. The only proper response to this, brothers and sisters, is worship. That's the only way that we can respond to the exaltation of Christ that's being given here. Now, look with me at Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, just to kind of go through that What the author is doing here is he's giving us the absolute exaltation and the absolute worship and veneration of the Son of God. Look at chapter one, verse six, just run down some of these verses. He, it says in verse six, and he again brings the firstborn into the world. And he says, let all the angels of God worship him. A call for worship of the Son as he is. Verse eight. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. I don't think you have a stronger deity verse in all the Bible than this verse right here, where the father is referring to the son as God, theos, God of very God. And verse 13... He says, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you, for your feet. You see total, complete, absolute exaltation. And then chapter two, verses seven and verse eight. Chapter one is about Jesus higher than the angels. Chapter one is about Jesus greater than the angels, better than the angels. Chapter two is about Jesus lower than the angels. All for the purpose of this. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. See that? So that his state of humiliation results in his state of exaltation and his session at the right hand of the Father. He says, you've appointed him over all the works of your hands. You have put all things in, subjective, uh, in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. I want you to really think deeply about that. Everything has been put in subjection to Jesus Christ. Everything everything going on in your life personally every disease every dysfunction every sin ultimately Christ rules over and is supreme and has control of but now we do not see all things subject to him there's the tension Jesus, exalted to the right hand of God, better than angels now, been crowned with glory and with honor. Everything is under his feet and serves his purpose, his rule, and his dominion. But right now, we don't see it. What we see now is ISIS beheading Christians in mass rate. What we see now is the church in China living under persecution. What we see now is the advancement of liberal values over against biblical and conservative values. I hope, I hope that you come back to this because what what is so compelling about all this for me is that this is the way that the author of Hebrews leads us to assurance. This is the way that the author of Hebrews is going to lead us into a place where we will not apostatize and end up making shipwreck of our faith. This is how he does it. He doesn't talk about psychology. You don't need hours and hours of counseling. You need a vision of Jesus Christ so high, so supreme, so glorious, so wonderful that you can't fathom turning away from him. That you can can only respond with worship, allegiance, dependence, humility, submission, homage, kiss the son, lest he be angry, bowing down. All of these are found in Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth? This can come from Nazareth. Lastly, Jesus has the power of God. We can go on and on. I had trouble cutting off my sermon, folks. I might be boring you right now, but I promise you, last night it was really hard for me to choose what goes in and what goes out because I just wanted to keep going and going and going with each one of these attributes because it is so absolutely glorious. But let's go on for time's sake. Jesus as the power of God, because it says there that not only is he the radiance of the glory of God, not only is he exact representation of the nature of God, but he upholds all things by the word of his power. And that's why I said we really need to hear that right now. Everything is being carried by the sun. Pheron is the participle that's used here, and it literally means to bear along to bear along, to carry it along, what gives the universe its ability to keep ticking on and on and on? Why isn't it that a solar flare pointed in just the right direction does not incinerate us? Why is it that sea time and harvest and why is it that those seasons will never fail? Why is it that we've come to this point? Well, we've come to this point precisely because Jesus has been bearing along the creation of the world. He's been bearing along everything, all of time, all of history, all of human history, all of the developments of redemptive history, all of the developments of the eschatological period in which we live until finally he consummates everything that he has been sustaining by his very word, by the word of his power. He sustains the creation that he has made by the word with which he makes it. He speaks it and it holds fast. One more time, John Brown says the whole universe hangs upon his arm. His unsearchable wisdom and his boundless power are manifested in governing and in directing the complicated movements of inanimate and inanimate or animate and inanimate rational and irrational beings to the attainment of his own great and holy purposes and he does this by the word of his power or by his powerful word all of this is done without effort Without difficulty, he speaks and it stands fast. Jesus is not laboring to keep this world going. He does it by the word of his power. So then how much power does he have for your life and mine? You are not more complicated than sustaining the whole universe, are you? Sometimes your life may feel that complicated. But God is able to sustain you through it all. He can keep you. You can trust him. So this is the point. If, If the exaltation of the Son demands that we worship him, then the providential power of the Son demands that we trust him with our very life trust him with the things that concern you so that you understand that just like he is able to bear up the galaxies and the stars in the far expanse of the universe just like he's able to bear up the Sun and all of the heavenly luminaries I mean You've heard people go on about that and how big the universe is. And, you know, compared to the sun, this star is this big. I'm not good at that kind of stuff. So i just tell you, it's real big. And God is bigger than all of that. And if he's bigger than all of that, then my friends, he is able to establish his will in your life. And that is exactly what Phil, uh, Richard Phillips says in his comment his commentary, the Reform Expositor Commentary. Expository commentary. He says, as the true and great and final prophet, no prophets needed after this, folks. He is able not merely to reveal the will of God, but also to establish the will of God on earth. Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, beautiful. This Jesus, I, I don't know what else to say about him. Much of the book of Hebrews is meant for us to see this exaltation as an argument, again, from the lesser to the greater. So that if Jesus creates the world presently and is able to sustain the world permanently, how powerful and how prominent ought him to be, ought he to be in our everyday lives. How totally sold out should we be to the name of Jesus? How much allegiance should we give him in our homes, our lives, our time, our money, our energy, our prayers? How much should we be devoted to this king who rules and governs everything? You know what will eliminate all of that? Unbelief. All the breath that I just expended, zapped by unbelief. You see how powerful this is? Hebrews is saying, this is how great God is. The greatness, the the, the, the greatness factor can't be any greater. So how are we going to escape if we neglect that? People in the past, look, we're going to get to the Hall of Faith, chapter 11, probably five years from now. (laughs) You're going to see people trusting in their God, knowing their God, walking with their God to the death, man. And yet what the author of Hebrews is saying is they had less than you do. And yet we act as if we need more. We don't have enough. Right? Think of yourself. Come on, just be honest. In the midst of your trial and the fire and the heat and the passion of the moment, where is God? what haven't you read the book of hebrews we have more revelation we have a perfect representation we have the embodiment of the glory of god what more do you need and we are accountable dear friends we have to take the most earnest heed lest we drift away because What's really frightening about the book of Hebrews, and this is why I also wanted to preach on the book of Hebrews, because as a good Calvinist, I need to feel the weight of the warnings of Hebrews that if you drift away, you can make shipwreck of your faith, Mr. One Saved, Always Saved. Understand that there is a means to the sovereign ends of God. Understand that in the book of Hebrews, We have to take the most earnest heed to these things because what Hebrews is saying is you can come this close to the most magnificent light. You could be as close to Jesus as Judas and yet be as far away from him as the devil himself. And that's my prayer for us. I've seen too much apostasy, folks. I have seen it. I've stood in the waters of baptism with people that six months later want nothing to do with Jesus because of some drug or some sin or some high or some girl or some boy or some relationship or some job or some position or some status or some lifestyle. And I just hear the book of Hebrews saying don't drift away. How much greater will our condemnation be if we neglect so great a salvation